Let me thank uh, Jim for an excellent lead-in to our time with the Lord around his table. And um, besides uh, calling us around his table, you reminded me of something I forgot to say at the beginning of the service, that this being Thanksgiving week, our tradition is to have a Tuesday service rather than a Wednesday service. So we will be meeting those of you who would like to come for a, a brief period of Thanksgiving in the fellowship hall at 7 o'clock on Tuesday evening. So if you would like to come and join us for that. If you don't, well, don't come Wednesday night because we're not going to be here. All right. Let's be standing, please, as we hear this, the Word of God. We're jumping into a story that in a moment Doug and I are going to uh, tell you. Uh, but this is the, toward the end of uh, that opening chapter of the story of Joseph when the brothers have mistreated their brother. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All of his sons and daughters came to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. May God bless the reading of his word. This morning, Doug and I want to back up a little bit from that reading and look at this first chapter of what the Bible calls the story of the family of Jacob. It begins in chapter 37, there at the beginning of the chapter, and the first person we meet is Joseph. Of course, if you've been reading the story, you know that Joseph is the older son of Rachel, the beloved Rachel that Jacob loves so much. And at this point, Joseph is 17 years old. And he's out working with his other brothers, his older brothers. And yet, already right there at the beginning, we sense that something isn't quite right. Because Joseph is assigned not to work with the brothers of, his, uh, of, of Leah, the sons of Leah. The, but rather, he is kind of uh, put over here to work with the four sons of the maids. And uh, if that's not enough of a hint then we know things are not going real well because what he likes to do is come home and tattle on the other brothers. You know, he comes home to dad and tells them all the bad things they've been doing. And we're not told whether they were really doing bad things or not. We just know that Joseph liked to come home and tell his dad that what the brothers were doing was not good. And then if that's not bad enough, we find out that Jacob has given this son Joseph, obviously his favorite son, he gives him a very special garment. Now, we don't really know what the description of this garment is. It's some words that we just can't bring out of Hebrew into English. We don't know those words. The typical translation has been a coat of many colors. 
in the newer translations it says a coat with longer sleeves. But we do know this. It was not a work garment. It wasn't something for him to wear out taking care of the sheep or in his farming duties or any of his ranching duties. It was the coat of a young prince. I have siblings but no brothers. You may know all too well what this would be like to have multiple siblings. Um, and you could probably picture not just teenage brothers in a household, but these are, these are men, adults, looking at their younger 17-year-old brother and realizing dad loves him more. I'm not sure if that was one instance in time where they finally realized Jacob loves Joseph more, but this was probably a very gradual and subtle thing to the point that they finally, over time, realized he favors him. And it's something that the more and more that he showed it just drove the pain a little bit deeper and the resentment a little bit deeper, especially when you have a coat given to him. And when you have something like that, or maybe you can connect with this idea of favoritism in family or jealousy, you can imagine how it would be when the brothers see this and their response to Joseph, that their hatred grows deeper and deeper to the point that they have nothing good to say about Joseph, especially in the presence of Jacob. But what would that be like outside of his presence? They have nothing peaceable, nothing kind to say. They could speak no peace about it, no shalom. And imagine the things that they could speak about it. They hated him all the more. And it got worse. Joseph had a dream. Joseph couldn't keep his dream to himself. He had to go tell the brothers. that He said, I dreamed that we were out working in the fields, cutting grain, bundling it up, making sheaves, as the old word is. And, and then all of a sudden, my bundle of grain stood up in the middle, and your bundles of grain gathered around, and all your bundles of grain started bowing down to mine. Well, they're not interpreters of dreams, but it doesn't take much interpretation there, does it, to understand what Joseph especially thinks that dream means. And they say, you think that we're going to bow down to you? How dare you think? You know, dad may be that way, but not us. You've got another thing coming if you think we are going to bow down to you. And because of this, they hated Joseph more. They hated his dream and they hated his words. If that wasn't enough, he has another dream. And even if you sympathize with Joseph, you've got to wonder as you read through this, did he really have to say it this way, bring it to their attention? But he has another dream, and he, he goes up to them and he says, listen, I had another dream. So he's not picking up on this, that this isn't good, or maybe he is, but he has this other dream. And this one's not so much about, you know, crops or anything like that, but this involves the sun and the moon and the stars, and Joseph. And in this dream, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, 11 brothers, who, you know, what could that mean? They all bow down to me. And he tells them this, and again, gradually and deeper the hatred goes between these brothers. Eventually, the brothers have to take the um sheep out to find pasture. They end up about 50 miles away from home. And it seems like that uh, Jacob, when he finds Joseph still at home, is a little puzzled about why he's still there. But 
It's sort of an indication of how things are going in that family, isn't it? Joseph had decided to stay home. But Jacob says, you need to go check on the peace or the well-being of your brothers. And we don't know if Jacob just wasn't really picking up on the fact that the brothers hated each other or whether or not he was trying to keep putting them together and maybe they could work it out. So he sends Joseph out to find his brothers, to check on them and to bring back a report. (laughs) He doesn't have a very good record of doing that either, does it? But the interesting thing about it is, guess what? Joseph wore when he went out to check on the brothers. Is he dreading this? Does he have a clue what's going on? Or is he naively going out to find the brothers? I tried to picture this and I just imagined him wearing this coat on this journey out to find his brothers to check on them. And I I tried to to really wonder, is, is he dreading this with every step? Or is he so clueless that he's walking around and he's checking his reflection in the in the creeks of how he looks in his coat or whatever, but he's going out to find his brothers. And he sees the flocks, so he knows about where they are, and he finally um, starts to make his way there. Before he even sees where the brothers are, they see him. And what they're doing is they're grazing the flocks, they're shepherding the flocks, caring for the flock. And while they're doing that, they're making plans to do the very opposite for their brother. They see him, this dreamer, And you can sense the disdain every time they see him, hear his name, watch him walking up. You can see the coat from all the way over here. And they start to plot. And they say, it's time for him to go. They're going to kill him. So let's kill him, throw him into one of these cisterns, and then let's see what happens with these dreams. But Reuben, the oldest son, feels some responsibility definitely feels a tie to his father. And he says, no, we can't do that. We don't want to be murderers. We don't want to have blood on our hands. So why don't we just throw them in the pit? You know, that could always be interpreted as just kind of, uh, I don't know, do y'all have brothers? (laughs) I raised three sons. There were a lot of little games came up. But anyway, let's just throw them in the pit. Of course, what Reuben is thinking is that when the other brothers lose interest, when they go off somewhere, he'll come back and get them out of the pit. And send him back home. From one verse to another, we move from Joseph in a pit to the brothers eating lunch. And maybe pranks like this had happened before where, you know, you're in the cistern, you're like, guys, come on, get me out, you know, for real, this has happened before, or, you know, the time you took my coat, give it back. Who knows what Joseph's thinking, but eventually the cries have got to be coming from the cistern that Joseph knows This is serious. And maybe when he was first put in, he knew this isn't good. But his brothers are eating, probably, as I imagine, amidst the the cries and the screams to get him out and maybe even threats. I'm going to tell dad. And as they're eating, they see the caravan of traders coming by, uh, going through Canaan, picking up goods and slaves to take to Egypt in the slave trade. And so you have the brothers who, who start to really think here, and there, there's kind of two factors in this decision that, you know what, first of all, uh, how could we do this to our brother? That would be wrong to kill him. And again, go and tell dad that a wild animal ate him. So the lesser evil would be, let's sell him. We don't have to lay a hand on him. We don't have to cover anything up. Let's do that. But another factor is the fact that Judah says, you know what, after all of this and after this whole ordeal, if we really kill him, what do we gain? Let's think logically here. We gain nothing. There's a caravan 
We sell him. He's out of our hair. We profit. And so they all agree, and that's what they do. So for 20 shekels, they um, sell him to the traders. Now, if you, if you talk to a seasoned scholar, um, they'll tell you that the New Testament fails us in this chapter a few times. And one of those is whether or not the brothers picked him up out of the pit or they let the traders pick him up. But either way, Joseph is sold and he goes with the caravan. But one brother was not there, Reuben. I've always wondered where Reuben was. Don't know if he had to go get supplies without checking the animals, but he just wasn't there when this decision was made. So when he comes back, he decides it's time to go by the pit, get his little brother out, send him home. You can just imagine as he walks up to that pit, maybe he calls his name and there's no answer. He thinks, well, he's just so mad at me, he's not going to say anything. But he gets a little closer and a little closer, and finally he looks over and the pit is empty. Reuben knows his other brothers, knows them well, and immediately knows that this is bad. And without a word, he just rips his clothes, runs and finds his brothers and says, he's not in the pit. And I, I love the way it says this in scripture, he says, and I, where can I turn? How can I face my father? What do you do? He's already gone. They go and they get a goat, they slaughter it, and it's almost as if Reuben's desperation is is too late. They slaughter the goat, they dip the robe into the blood, and they have it sent back to dad. And who they once considered our brother that we can't kill, so we might as well sell, now becomes your son, the son that you love so much. We found this. Check to see if it's your son's robe. So they do this. They leave the burden to um, Jacob. He sees the robe. He recognizes it, and he makes the assumption the conclusion that Joseph has surely been killed and torn up by a wild animal. So the very person who stole his brother's blessing from his dad by using his brother's clothes now is deceived as his sons use his son's robe. And the point that's really important here is that he recognized that it was his. Jacob immediately was plunged into grief. There's probably no more difficult grief than the loss of a child. And his favorite child. He immediately tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, and enters into mourning and weeping. The brothers and the others of the family gather around him and do the best they can to encourage him. Which again, I just, what's going on in those brothers' minds as they see what their dad, maybe some of them were thinking he deserves it because he brought all this on. Maybe some others were touched in their hearts, we don't know. But there was no consoling Jacob. And his response to them is, I will go to my grave still grieving over my son. And that's what we want to talk about for the next few moments today, is grief. Grief in life is inevitable. For, for all of us, to some extent, we either have or will face grief. And isn't that the risk that we take any time that we attach to anything or anyone? 
is the risk of losing it. It's inevitable. In regards to losing loved ones, when we draw close to someone, we basically are attaching ourselves with them and intertwining our lives, getting wrapped up into someone else to the point that we share this relationship. It's responsive. Intimacy occurs when you extend yourself and someone else responds to it. And so you have this pattern built in of action and response, feeling and response, sometimes to the point that the response happens before you even extend. And so to lose that, to lose that person, that love, that person that you've probably, you know, been training the whole relationship, you know, husband and wife, you finally get them trained, you know, and, um, or kids, you finally get the norms down. To lose that is to lose part of yourself, to be left with no response. And so you could imagine, if you've ever lost anyone, what Jacob might feel. I'm not sure exactly what that's like personally because I've never lost anyone immediately close to me. But there are other ways that we grieve, other things to grieve. Maybe you're in the same position that you haven't lost any one person, but it's in different forms. You can lose uh, your comfort in life, a feeling of comfort and peace that you were all right and then things changed and you're just not at peace anymore however that may change. Things that are special to you or, or just those truly special times in life or material possessions that just meant so much because of the meaning that was there. Pictures, you could imagine everything that we could put into that category. You could grieve losing your innocence, the virginity of a youth maybe, but just a point where you could never go back and be the same. Maybe it's um, your physical ability. And not to, not to equate an athlete losing their physical ability with someone losing a person, but to different levels we can grieve the loss of something that was normal and a passion that's no longer there. We can also grieve the choices we've made the effects that those have had on others, the effects that those may have on our kids, on our best friends, relationships broken. And we can also grieve time lost, future that was so bright that we've lost. I've always connected with grieving people, and again, I said I've never lost anyone close to me, but in my case, and this is just to serve as an example, my grief is not has not been so much about who I've lost, but what I've never gained, what I should have gained. My grief is more about the people that I wished had died, that wouldn't die, that wouldn't go away, that you couldn't get rid of. My grief has to do with the relationships that were in turmoil that was daily. That you go amongst all the other people and they seem normal, but you yourself just have this burden that you cannot escape. One example of that, without just telling you my life story, is 
at 14 or 15, having enough, choosing to still live, ran away. Um, I'd run away before. I'd always turn right and go to a friend's house. This time I turned left, never going back. And I had to look at my mom a couple days later when we finally got back together, and I had to look at her and say, I'm never going back home to live with you or the three sisters that I love because I can't. And I shouldn't have to make this decision. This shouldn't have happened. And forever my identity was wrapped up in the grief that came because of what wasn't my fault. And the choices I had to make, the choices others had made that just left me broken. Then I had to deal with my own sin and the ways that that grieved me. My responses to those things in life and how that just left me broken and lonely. This is the only part of this sermon that I did not feel confident about. All week I felt great about it. And last night there was just a block. I couldn't, I couldn't touch this part of my life again because I've tried to distance it. But here are some words that I wrote down, and I want to read these just in case they resonate with some of you. Embittered. Humiliated. Exposed. Provoked. Mocked. Terrorized. Fearful. Beat down withheld, cornered. Whatever it is that you grieve, whether you've lost a person or you've lost potential or you never had it, it leaves us different and it leaves us broken and searching for that normal again. I really appreciate Doug being open and honest. One thing we have to confess is that all of us have grief in our lives, some kind or another, and there's many different kinds of grief. And as we close out today, I I want us to recognize that sometimes what our goal becomes is to get over that grief. I know people around us want us to get over it because it makes them uncomfortable. They don't know what to say, and they want us to be better. They want us to just move on and not be grieving anymore. Back in the old days, you wore black while you were grieving, and you wore it for a certain period of time, and then you took it off, put on your other clothes, and everything was supposed to be wonderful. I don't think it was then. I know it's not now. Once we have grief in our lives, in some way or another, that grief will always be in our lives. So what do we do with it? Well... Why would we talk about this on a Sunday morning? (laughs) Because we all have it and we all need it. (laughs) But we don't want to. And we're conditioned. Keep that to yourself. We want to sing praises. We really don't want to sing the two-thirds of the psalms that deal with these types of emotions. We're conditioned to just, shh, it's okay, you're okay. And even after those, those times when we've lost someone or something, Maybe there's support there, but after a while, there's this expectation, are you good now? 
And even if, if they ask you, how are you doing? And you could explain all these things and just pour out your heart. And then you still have that person that says, but you're okay, right? <laughs> we have these healthy and unhealthy expectations at times to pull someone out of that grief and just make sure they're okay. And I think sometimes God is the only one to do that. Lament has a role in our dealing with grief. And Tommy asked me the question this week, what is the difference between lament and just complaining? And I I thought, well, not much. Whining, venting, complaining, ranting, unleashing, those things happen in lament. And in the, the laments in Psalms, we are given the structure and the examples of how to just express to God what we're feeling. And most of the time, those are not good feelings to have. Where are you, God? Why did this happen? Why are my enemies prevailing? Why haven't I done enough? When is this going to end? Lament, though we hate to bring ourselves to that, that low position to actually do and walk through, I think there's a purpose in it. And it's to, first of all, acknowledge and voice where we're at and what we need. But the difference between lament and, to me, complaining and whining and all of those things is that lament is to God. When we take those to God, we find not this source that's saying, shh, it's okay, my son died for you, it's okay, just go and sing happy songs in church. We don't get that figure that's saying, okay, just get over it, get through it really quickly. We find this God whose heart's been ripped out as well, who identifies with our hurts and who's felt some of those things and who says, come to me and let me hear you. I know. I'm so sorry. I don't really have much of a solution to the grief. I do have hope that a lot of things can be redeemed in this life. Some will have to wait until heaven. So I don't want to set some unfair expectations for lament, but I think that in that we have a healthy structure that leads us from our inescapable pain and grief to somehow turning to God and saying, I'm going to trust in your unfailing love. And you are who I need. We wanted to bring this up, and we didn't have much time today to talk about such a deep subject. But we wanted to bring it up to, for one thing, as Doug has pointed us to here toward the end, to recognize that grief is not something that is going to just go away. It changes us forever. It may not be something that's on our mind at all times, but there are times when it will come back on us just as strong as it was when we first suffered that loss. We have to realize that a false expectation is to get through it and get over it. The real expectation is to learn how to incorporate it into who we are. And as Doug has pointed us to lament, to those psalms that we often skip over because they're not the happy psalms, but to see that the main goal is to cry out to God and even complain to God. But the thing is, we're talking to God. We're having a conversation with Him. We are bringing Him our sorrows. We are bringing Him 
our griefs. And any time we're talking to God, whether it's thanking Him, praising Him, adoring Him, or griping at Him, it's good because we're interacting with Him and He with us. The other reason we wanted to bring this up today is we realize that every person in this room has something that you are grieving about. And we want you to know that God sees that, and we want you to also know this church sees that. So we're going to close today with a blessing. And I want to bless those or bring God's blessing on all of those who, as Doug shared, have lost portions of your life in ways that, that, that maybe some your responsibility, maybe a lot other people's responsibility, but something was taken from you in your life, and throughout your life you have grieved that loss. May God bless you by filling you with his presence. May God bless you by being a God who walks next to you and comforts you and strengthens you. And for those of you who have lost those who are near to you, especially spouses, especially children. May God bless you by being the God that is constantly before you. May he live with you. May he give you the strength to face each day. May he give you eyes to see others in their grief and to use your grief to minister to them as well. And may we all cling to this hope and knowing that one day we will be before God and our losses will be restored and God will truly bless us. Let's stand and sing.